0: Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pepets podcast, where we talk about things that are happening in the world of plant science. I am Tegan.
1: Hi, I'm Joram.
0: <laughs> Every time you seem, it seems like you try to make that sound more awkward. <laughs> Hello.
1: It's, that's just my personality. My name personality. is Joram. That's, mm. it's, it's, it's fun uh, that you <laughs> think my personality is getting more and more awkward over time but it could it could very well be from my complete lack of social interaction i uh, most mm. of my conversations happen on the level of a 2-year-old these days so that's that's rubbing off i think
0: i think that's definitely a factor i think also i'm i'm curious if anybody's done the studies yet that the fact that we interact through zoom more often in the last couple of years i wonder if that's changed our linguistic patterns like it's definitely They've shown that it's it's draining. And part of that is just because when you interact via video, you spend a lot of time looking at your own face. And that is using energy, being like, am I pretty? Am I a pretty parrot? Yes, I'm pretty. Yes, I'm so pretty. And just sort of, "Yeah." I mean, Yarm got to see me be a parrot there. All the rest of you are missing a great visual. <laughs> but So like, there's like an energy thing. But I wonder if also we change the way we speak because you need more pauses on Zoom. There's sort of missing some of those non-verbal cues
1: yeah yeah and i think also the the whole dynamics and everything how we speak is, is different um often also for like technical reasons um to be to be understood um i have like a sleeping human on me right now that had just
0: i can hear some something the in the background.
1: dream but i think now yeah let's see uh, but yeah, I think the the way we we speak and pronounce and enunciate changes as well because we're so used to scream sort of at our laptops to make sure the other side can hear us because many don't use like, they don't have that dedicated equipment um, or just basic equipment which is good enough. Like I I don't want to be right now shunning people for having not the fancy microphones, but it makes it like you you adapt to it and then you start talking in this weird pattern and loudness and i find it draining to speak like this and to listen to this uh i think an hour on a video call is from an auditory point of view much more exhausting than an hour in a meeting room although i I had meeting room meetings physical face-to-face meetings that were worse than any zoom call i had but (laughs) um, but i think overall Over most face-to-face meetings are less draining. Yeah. How have you been?
0: I've been good. I mean, um, things have been weird here, but I spent some time on the weekend doing socializing. I actually spent Friday evening and then all of Saturday doing like multiple different social events with different social groups and then spent all of Sunday lying on my back on the couch staring at the (laughs) ceiling, like not even at the TV, just like, no, I cannot. I'm exhausted. (laughs) This was... (laughs) too much fun and then then on the the seventh day i rested and it was good
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice that sounds something but yeah that I it's could been use. nice
0: yeah yeah uh, you you have also been resting but for different reasons i guess
1: <laughs> although yeah i didn't actually didn't uh, rest that much um we got covid in the family which was um a lot of fun um from my but son's everybody's daycare okay. Yeah, everybody's okay. We had it very much I had flus, I had colds that were much worse than um our case of COVID here because we're all like triple boosted for triple the Triple vaxxed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, triple vaxxed, like one, one booster for the adults. Um and with kids, statistically speaking, they often are fine and so so were ours. So um nobody in in, in very bad health. Uh and it was yeah, actually Germany is right now very, very slow with the whole testing and everything. So we got the result that my son is positive um, pretty much when he was already recovering. So there was sort of bad news that was com- See, that's coming. See,
0: the silver lining of the, the slowness, right? Like it's yeah, yeah, the mm. bad
1: news were coming, but we, were, we knew that the worst was already behind us. So getting the diagnosis just meant... relief because it it means that he's sort of immune for the foreseeable future, for the near future, um, when he goes back to daycare. So um, for us, it was actually then good to get it over with, which doesn't mean that I encourage people to get it on purpose. Um, We were just fortunate to see that none of us were severely affected. We had other friends who were knocked out for a week or longer, um, with, like, high fever, and we didn't have that, so we were lucky there. So it's definitely not a good idea to to, to just be, ah, oh, maybe we're also lucky and then just get it. At the same time, in Germany right now, if you are in Germany and have kids, it's pretty much unavoidable. Um, they, it's just rushing through daycares and schools. So, um, yeah, but we have that behind us now. It's weird to start the new year with um, a COVID infection, but maybe that just means it goes all uphill from here
0: (laughs) wow okay so that's good you've you've had the covid um you won't be talking about covid anymore for the next at least 365 days Mm -hmm. and from what i'm hearing is you're very pro everybody getting covid that's what that sounded like it's gonna be (laughs) cut awkwardly into some sort of radical statement um that gets everybody here in trouble so stay (laughs) safe out there guys we know this is still ongoing hope everybody's sort of doing okay Let's talk about plant science.
1: It's the paper of the week.
0: Before I go into the paper of the week, I just want to mention that Joram and I are undergoing extremely severe connection problems today. We're not having cutouts, we're just having everything sounds like it's been chopped up by a robot and that jingle just sounded like it was like being played by just cutting the little strings individually <laughs> like it was truly <laughs> awful um cool yeah the paper of the week is the big one that we have to talk about because it's making the rounds in the popular science blogs it's on the other podcasts including the nature podcast and it came out in nature on the 12th of january so a couple of weeks back what's it called yarm
1: it's called mutation bias reflects natural selection in arabidopsis thaliana.
0: Dun dun dun. Um, It came. It's by corresponding authors J. Gray Monroe and also Detlef Weigel. Weigel. How do you say that properly?
1: Detlef Weigel.
0: Thank you for Germaning, correcting my German. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and it's a bunch of co-authors from Germany, the U.S., Sweden, and France who are involved in this paper. Yeah. So, this is big news, um, thanks to the recommendation of my work friend who who gave me a shout, but I think Yarm, you also found out about this and you had this as one of your fun facts before we decided to talk about it. It's a pretty big paper, um, and the reason behind that is because it's sort of rewriting how we think about evolution in yeah. some ways, so yeah, we'll sort of come back to that in a bit, but let's let's talk first about what mutations are.
1: Mutations are always happening everywhere. And we're going to discuss what exactly everywhere means in just a second. Um, but when you have genetic material and you go from um, generation to generation, you will have small changes. You will have small errors. Some some of the letters of the genetic code change. And this then leads to changed outcomes in some cases, sometimes not. Um but this is what drives evolution in the grand sc- scheme of things. Um, because not every generation is the same as the previous generation, but has small variations, uh, small deviations from from what was before. Um, they can then adapt and, in a classic sense, get fitter, keep some stuff that's good, throw some stuff out that's bad on a genetic level, and then therefore become like a, a different species or another species altogether. Um in the, in the yeah. grand scheme of things.
0: that Yeah, that was like a very like stepped back evolutionary, like this is how things have evolved over time um, point of view. Smaller mutation is basically a screw up. Um, it can be like a copying error, like the DNA gets copied and it puts the wrong thing in. It can also be caused by like chemicals or UV, like mutagens, um, things from outside, which are helping these screw ups happen, which we'll come back to a little bit later. And like from the name, mutation is kind of, like got this bit negative connotation like it's, it's an error it's it's a stuff up mm-hmm. um but as we know from the x-men um mutants aren't <laughs> always bad and that's kind of what you already said is that like mutations are causing this this variation that happens in populations and ultimately variation can drive change and you know with the selection agent you can actually get interesting and new things happening which can um yeah lead to different species evolving or species with cool new Magical abilities, like yeah. healing powers, or like calling <laughs> on weather of ev- I don't know what what did the I don't even remember what the X-Men do. One of them can turn into some sort of bird, like a dark bird. That's mostly yeah, what can, I remember.
1: I think whatever thing you can come up with somewhere in the history of these comic books, one of the mutants could do it. Talk to butterflies. I don't know. Like some someone was able to do it the the thing about these mutations is in the in a classic understanding i think sort of in the textbooks that you and i may, might have read the idea is that these mutations happen randomly and equally so you don't whatever you have in your genetic code it just has a, a chance of getting hit by a mutation every single gene and every non-gene area that you have the stuff that used to be called junk dna now we're just calling them intergenic regions so the stuff between the genes all of this stuff, traditionally thought, has the same chance of getting hit by mutations. And this is what we're going to to talk about today.
0: So the basis is like the mutations are kind of random. And then what's happening afterwards is where the sort of selection comes in. So that's like yeah. there's a mutation and then the selective pressure um, chooses whether that gets to stick around. I mean, basically, if you can imagine it, if a mutation happens and something gets damaged that's really needed, then... That, that organism with that that screw-up is gonna die, or, yeah. you know, that's that's gonna, those, those ones are not gonna propagate and pass on the genes. Um, so there's a really strong selection for fixing important yeah. screw-ups, um, but not fixing the ones that don't matter as much. Um, although you did mention that we sort of had this idea that mutations happening, the, the happening, not the afterwards, the selection is random. We do have some background information before this paper that suggested that's not the case, So when I read the title of this paper, I thought, huh. And I immediately thought about these, um, like, T, T, so you've got A, T, C, G in the DNA base, and we know if two T's are close together, like, that can be a little bit problematic because when UV from the sun hits them, They those T's like to basically link arms, um, the bonds absorb some yeah. energy and they link up, they dimerize, um, and that basically has to be then fixed. So those they, they get cut out and replaced with something. So I, I already had in my mind that even though maybe there's this idea of mutations happening randomly, we do have some prior evidence that it's not entirely random. So it yeah. could depend on the nucleotide composition, um, but there are also things like epigenomic features. This is like the bedazzling of the DNA, adding extra structures, and they can also protect the DNA. And sort of, we, we have some evidence of this yeah. previously. And also, we know that there's sort of sort of correction. So we have DNA repair, and there's also we know that that can differ depending on where in the genome we are. So we'll come back to that a little bit later, maybe. But it's not entirely true that we thought that everything was completely random
1: yeah and i think this is especially in the last i know decade or so more in, with the advent of um cheaper and better sequencing technologies we had more understanding of that like the, the that we were able to sequence something like the epigenome so all of these sort of meta structures of the dna that are not just the genetic code this is stuff that we are just starting to understand so this is all fairly new ideas that's why i thought said that this is stuff from our school days because back then in the school books definitely um, the idea was that it's all the same but like so many times there are already researchers thinking about uh, all of the the outlier cases or the um, is it really that simple that, it, that it's perfectly random? And it's, as you said, yeah, it's it's probably not. And this paper now um, that we're talking about today did, uh, took a closer look. So how how did they do that?
0: Yeah, so like one of the problems of even looking at this is that, you know, if you've got two events, one is the mutation happening itself, and then that's followed by selection for whether that mutation gets kept or basically thrown out of the genome it's really hard to separate those two things, like those two events, there's the the mutation and the selection. And that's because when we're looking at changes across genomes, we're seeing sort of a result that's already been selected for across evolutionary time. Um, So it's, it's hard to see whether the mutation itself was random because we, what we're looking at already is the combination of mutation and selection.
1: So you could just not... Uh, it's not enough to simply take a big collection of, for example, Arabidopsis that we have already now. I don't know, some from Spain, some from Norway, some um, from East Turkey, and then sequencing those and then looking where the mutations are between them and then saying, okay, these the mutations are not equally distributed, therefore mutations don't happen... Um, randomly because as you said then the selection did already happen so we can't use something that's already been out in the wild i say for a long time
0: so what we need to do is see these mutations happen sort of in real time as much as is possible and they use something called um, mutation accumulation lines and basically they're just like looking at mutations that have happened very recently so i think it's across only 24 25 generations so you've not sort of let these sit around and be selected for and you're also growing these plants under really permissive environments where you're basically coddling them um, so that the mutation, there's not much selection on the plant. So you're trying to limit that, that second element, the selection as much as possible. I I actually went back to the original paper or not the original paper, but the, the recent paper that described these um, mutation accumulation lines. It's by Mao Lung Wang, was one of the co-authors of this paper and colleagues, and it came out in 2019. Um, and I was trying to work out what the the growth conditions were. They mentioned it uh-huh. like it was growing in a greenhouse. But in my mind, I was imagining something like, okay, you know, in the movie Wally, where the humans are in space and they're basically just like floating in pods and they get to float around everywhere and like get fed by tubes. And like, I was imagining that for plants, realistically. I'm imagining something where it's like really low light, but like enough nutrients, maybe like some sugar in their media. So like stuff is good. This was... I couldn't find the group. I'm very sad. I couldn't find the group. I mean, I think I had t- to, like, rabbit hole my way down a few more um, papers, like, yeah. reference in a reference in a reference, and I, I did not. Um, but in my mind, that's what's happening. These these plants are basically being wallied so that they don't have the selection, which would then interfere with separating the mutation from the selection.
1: Yeah, they, they grow in a plant spa instead of a plant greenhouse uh, to... yeah it's its really the right word here to avoid any stress because stress is also a factor that can increase mutations um or increase selection pressure that can then get rid of some of the the bad mutations and this is not something that you don't want so the plants are absolutely unstressed and they're just relaxed and happy and chilling um although they like literally chilling they are the perfect cozy room temperature <laughs>
0: They're a body temperature, but for a plant, not for a body. (laughs) Um, And yeah, as I mentioned, the fact that it's only 24, 25 generations is also really important because again, you don't want to give it a lot of time for this, like generational time for these selections to be happening. Yeah. So before we go into the the really results, they also had a kind of step that checks that their their gentle wally conditions this this pampering of the plant is working. So normally, when we look at the sort of mutations that occur, you know, as an end product, so there's mutation plus selection, we see that certain type of mutations are quite uncommon, and those like two of those are a mutation which puts a stop in the middle of the gene. Um, so you can change the the base, the DNA, and and basically just disrupt the gene Um, that's pretty uncommon because obviously once you lose the gene you can then have fitness um, problems and then the other thing is when you just make any change that's gonna change not only the the codes of the DNA but also the amino acid outcome and the fact is like a lot of the time you can change the code of the DNA and you can still have exactly the same amino acid from different codes which is just sort of a a quirk of of the way DNA codes (laughs) proteins um, so normally you don't get those two very often and they found that in their system they still got quite a lot of those. They got more than that that you'd see sort of in the wild, which means that their their conditions, these coddling gentle conditions are quite nice for the plants. Um, of course, they're still going to lose things that cause inviability so that like completely kill the plants. They're obviously going to still select against themselves and anything that causes sterility because we are needing to go through these different generations. But overall, like, the conditions are quite are quite sweet for the plants here.
1: So now they, they have a system set up where they're quite certain that they're only looking at mutations and hardly any selection, uh, apart from the few exceptions that you mentioned. So now they could look at what really is influencing where you find the mutations. Um, is it truly random? Do you find mutations across the whole genome in every single spot with a certain chance? Or do you only see it in certain, in specific areas, and then figure out what are these areas and what do they have in common? And I think um, one of the, st- uh, the ways they looked at their the data set is um, they tr- tr- mapped all of the probability of having a mutation in a certain position and then looked at the transcription start sites, so where the DNA is. Um, transcribed into mRNAs um, and where th- these areas begin. So these are the important bits. Um, we could also say these are the genes, but um, sometimes tr- transcription starts a bit earlier before the actual like start coding of the gene, so that's why um, it's all a bit fuzzier here. But they essentially look at w- where is actually the information on the DNA and what they saw was that right up to the point where the transcription start site is, um, you have a high probability of getting a mutation and then starting from the point where the actual transcription happens, um, it drops significantly. And they have a couple of plots in the paper that you can, where you can nicely see that you have this sharp drop in probability that you find a mutation in that spot. Um, and then it goes up again a little bit, but not a- as high again. And then at the end of the transcription area, so when the gene is over, then it goes back up again. So it gives us an idea that um, there the, the, there's a lower chance to um, mutate any given gene compared to anything that's not a gene and these are both like fuzzy terms as i said but um this is one of the main findings, and this is quite interesting because mutations outside of the genes in general are less exciting for variation for for the (laughs) next Mm. generation because in the genes is where the magic happens this is the area where you want to have change over time that you can then select it for and then have all of the adaptation and all of the fancy stuff of evolution um but if you so seeing that there's a smaller chance of hitting these areas is in itself quite interesting but it goes further than that right
0: yeah it was quite a lot different though. there's like 58 percent lower like like less likely that it would happen in this this chunky meaty part of the gene than in the nearby area so that's quite a shift in um probability they they also yeah as you said they they went a little bit further so they looked sort of at where um where it was but also what features of genes could correlate with like more or less chances of mutations so um something like if a gene has introns this is i how do we even explain this so instead of having like a gene just in one chunk some genes are broken up but like with little spacer regions basically in between it's like when the you watch to a YouTube video. It's ridiculous. Nowadays.
1: You oh, watch a YouTube ads. video, <laughs> you get the ads in between. And introns, That's beautiful. while they're not paid for by any like weird startup company, company that wants you to invest money in crypto, um, they, they sort of... Interrupt your actual information, and when you get rid <laughs> of the introns, when that's a splicing operation that cuts out all of the ads, all of the introns between the actual information of your gene, um, and so you within a yeah, gene like- you have stuff that's exciting, uh, interesting, that's information, and you have stuff that's space in between, um, and that's the introns that can get can or that can and will get cut out out of the gene when it's met when the mRNA is.
0: That's just, like, a really beautiful analogy. I do think it's being a little bit unfair to introns because introns, yes. unlike YouTube ads, do have some function. <laughs> like, they can also yeah. determine um, different, like, properties of the gene and how it's going to get um, expressed but it, that's, that's beautiful. That's basically what it is. So, yeah, apart from sort of those benefits, these, these effects on gene expression, things like that, um, as it turns out, it also has an impact on mutation. So genes lacking introns, also known as YouTube ads now, had um, 90% greater probability of mutation. And there was also, um, depending on the length, like how long those ads were going for, it also impacts on uh, how off, how frequent the mutations were as well.
1: hmm That's interesting. Do they go into any details why that would be? Because to me, functionally, and that here's my lack of knowledge on on gene structure, do genes with introns um, group together in, I don't know, core functionality or something more important that that they get less mutated um, than things that don't have introns?
0: I mean, we can discuss a little bit more the, the causation behind this um, this mutation probability, but they did also look at the, the functional elements. They looked at whether um, there are less or more mutations in these very um, essential genes. So not just like in the part of the gene that is the bulky part, but also some genes are just more useful than other genes as far as, some genes, if, if you get rid of them, the whole organism dies, um, whereas other genes are a little bit more decorational and they're often used, you know, under stress conditions or like specialized scenarios. But you can remove them from, the, from functioning and, you know, the organism is mostly okay. And they found that in you know, the essential genes, those really important ones, do have fewer mutations as well. So mm-hmm. they did look at that, that sort of function relationship so to go to go back to what you mentioned sort of the causation behind this um they they overall found that they could see quite a lot of what changes how mutations happen the frequency so the variation of the pattern of the mutations um based on sort of these epigenetic features so this is kind of what we talked about at the very top there's different things about genes and genomes that um alter how often mutations Take place. Interestingly, with the sort of functional, the essential genes, they found that it wasn't related to um, these intrinsic mutational properties, such as um, the CG content. We sort of mentioned, you know, T content can increase mutations. Um, it wasn't linked to the methylation of C and Gs, but instead they think it might be um, related to other epigenomic features, like methylation of the histones coming in and sort of buffering or protecting basically um, those important genes
1: yeah so instead of having changes that are done on the nucleotide scale so um, as you said like individual methylations of individual nucleotides it's rather bigger structural things like how how tightly they are wound around um, the histones how accessible the dna actually is um uh, and um yeah how, how accessible it is to not only the mutation, but also to the repair mach- machinery, because you have this sort of back and forth between the mutation force, which is very abstract, and then repair machinery trying to m- get rid of all of the mutations. And depending on how the genome is structured um, on this epigenetic level, the repair machinery can have more easy access or less easy access to the f- molecule that is the DNA. And so this explains some of the the changes in mutation right there as well, right? Um
0: Yeah, I think in this, sorry, I think in this case, it was kind of, this was not exactly tested, but they think this is the probable, Yeah. (laughs) like they could rule out that it wasn't certain things. And then they're saying, okay, it looks like it's linked to some other stuff that has been described before in other studies, but it's not like an exact finding from this study specifically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what what does that mean for to us?
0: Well I think so this has been done in Arabidopsis which is our favorite plant species um but obviously we need to know how how much this is happening beyond just this plant species which is what the authors sort of mention at the conclusion of their study we need to see if this is you know just for all plants or also for all eukaryotes or like for all organ- what's what's happening here um and then sort of broadly speaking there's some importance which goes beyond this, because we we use mutations and our, our thoughts about how often mutations happen as a way of looking at how closely related species are, you know, doing phylogenies, looking at these relationships and also looking at how time has passed, like evolutionarily mm-hmm. speaking. And so if we're finding out that it's not as random as we thought, this mutation itself, that's a bit problematic for the way we've been calculating yeah. stuff, um, especially if we're using like different genes in different scenarios, then it becomes a, sort of a question of, well, maybe that gene was just mutating at a slower rate. Now we know because it's protected yeah. or special or essential. Um, so that's yeah, yeah. kind of a bigger, interesting question that's happening here.
1: I think it's exciting because uh, we're not only doing this r- sort of relationship analysis on an evolutionary scale for entire species where we th- say a plant is related to this other plant um, and they di- diverged, uh, 400 million years ago, but instead now, now we do this also on genes because we have the genetic data and knowing that genes can evolve at a different speed um, depending on how important they are to the genome or how they are protected by the epigenetic uh, info- uh, machinery or like the epigenetic information around them can throw off these relationship analyses. And I'm, I'm curious to see what the effects will be in the future if we will have to remap some of the relationship of genes that we thought were close together and maybe they're not.
0: I think like the final thing I want to mention before we finish on this paper is that I listened to a bit to the the Nature podcast which was talking about this Um, and they had an interview with uh, Detlev, I think it was and I, one of the things that stood out is that he was like yeah this is we were not looking for this answer this was it was not a hypothesis that there would be different rates of mutation in different parts because that, that concept was quite outlandish like even with a little bit of this background knowledge like this what they've found, this preference for essential genes and things like that, that's seems almost ridiculous. So it's like we weren't looking for that. It was just sort of something that we found when we were doing these these larger um analyses. They were actually looking for, for gene knockouts um in their plants instead of that. So mm-hmm. I kind that's, of like the the slightly chance yeah, side that's, of it.
1: That's that's what I imagine because from sort of the setup of uh, of this it could it looked to me like you had this they had this big collection available and wanted to sequence it anyway um or wanted to sequence it for for other reasons and then as one part of the analysis they they looked at everything and then they thought oh something's odd here and then they um did the analysis properly uh, and then result in this paper this is, this is a, a gut feeling that I had when I was reading this and it's fun it's interesting to hear that this is sort of the case here
0: so I think like one of the <laughs> we forgot to mention one of the major takeaways um, which is that like previous studies I think have shown that um, only 20 to 30% of gene body sites are actually subject to selection so this means that the this mutation bias could be a bigger feature than the selection itself and mm-hmm. the authors also looked at all these different um, accessions of Arabidopsis. Um, so this is, again, like where there's already been past diversion um, and you have so the mutation plus the selection. And they found that it sort of reflects the mutation bias, which suggests, again, this the mutation bias is playing maybe a bigger role than...
1: Mm-hmm okay yeah
0: that's kind of it that's kind of important um we didn't mention that and that sort of comes back into the the title of the piece which was mutation bias reflects natural selection in arabidopsis taliana so this is by Munro and colleagues and came out in nature this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins
1: Um yeah, and I have a story today that's um also related about uh <laughs> to, to old stuff. Uh we talked about um no, that's like we didn't talk necessarily about old stuff but about evolution. And evolution uh we think of Darwin, and when we think of Darwin, um we can think of his abominable mystery. Um the idea that uh, at one point in evolutionary timescale um There was this explosion of diversity of the uh, angiosperms, of the flowering plants that didn't exist for a long time. We only had gymnosperms and other photosynthetic things, but no flowering plants. And then suddenly we find the first fossils of of angiosperms uh, and then we find a lot of them. And it was a big mystery. How could that happen so quickly? Why would there so be so many different species so quickly? And we talked about this before um, with like different uh, um, ideas that you have all of these different ecological niches that were suddenly made and then populated with things. Um, the angiosperms, they could make fruit and it could be food then for animals and then the animals could pollinate them. And so you had the, these relationships that would drive um, a much faster selection pressure. Um, but one way to solve this uh, pr- um, abominable mystery as well could be maybe it just didn't happen so quickly. Um,
0: what? <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, maybe it's really did... the
0: Occam's razor of answers. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, this happened too fast. It can't be possible. Oh, yeah, you're wrong about the time. Oh, okay, cool. Good.
1: <laughs> Done. <laughs> exactly. They've, they found um, a new fossil um, and this fossil is... The I, one of the oldest fossil of an angiosperm. Um, they found a preserved flower, and it um, has the structure of uh, that's distinctly angiosperm, and it's one hundred and sixty-four million years old. And this is much older than um, the the previously oldest fossil. Fossil extending, I think, by a range of like thirty to forty million years. The time that um, that the angiosperms had. To have this this explosion of diversity, uh, and that of of course makes it then easier to imagine how that could happen. If you have more time, then you have more time to diversify, and then it's not as much of a big mystery how that could happen. Um,
0: I'm I always confuse my time scales. So, what what happened four hundred fifty million years ago? Is that when the plants came to Earth?
1: Um a hundred what did you say 150? 450.
0: 450. I think that might be the great extinction. <laughs> Four hundred and fifty. Yeah. Uh okay. When did plants move to earth? To land. <laughs> I did probably better <laughs> I'm
1: gonna get some weird So we we lists. know from before the start, they found this fossil that the oldest biggest flower fossil, where there's no doubt that it's a flower that's 130 million years old. And now they found one where um they think it's 164 million years old, so 34 million years older than before, which then extends this time period during which all of this um, magical diversification happened and which in part answers the question, like, how could this happen? Yeah, they had more time, so then it's suddenly less magic. Which doesn't mean that it's it's still fascinating and stuff, but it's just, um, it's maybe not an abominable yeah. mystery um, as much. Uh, I have to say there's some debate in the scientific field, like, whether or not this fossil really, really shows um, a plant flower. Um, because, I mean, I look at the picture and I just see a, a capsule of something, but people who know (laughs) their plant fossils they are able to to tell like the different petals apart and say that um you can see the the structure of a flower and that's just um, a pressed little ball (laughs) that i see there um
0: yeah it looks like uh it looks like a magnolia bud honestly but it also looks like something that could be like a fungal spore or a little moss capsule but yeah let's assume the experts know what they're talking about yeah I like how you're just like, yeah, I solved it It's not interesting anymore. I solved it for fuck's sake. You love the abominable mystery, but every time you talk about the abominable mystery, you're like, yeah, but actually also not that abominable. <laughs> Do you just like saying the word abominable? Is that what's happening here?
1: Uh, d- no, I actually find it hard to pronounce the word abominable. It's impossible. Abominable. It's
0: only used for like this and like the snowman. <laughs> it's basically the Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah. really a common English word I'd say. Okay. Um speaking of things that are difficult to stay to say, I wanted to um make a couple of comments about language. I've been reading like we read the the fungi book for our plant book club, um, yeah. Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake and i realized from that and also from some of the other popular science books we've been reading and one that i'm also reading for my job at the moment that i really like it when the the researchers also discuss sort of the linguistic origins of whatever they're talking about so they're like oh yeah this has this name and this name because of x reason and x history um And I just wanted to shout out, I started listening to a new podcast, which is called Lingthusiasm. It's not related to plants at all, but it is related to language, and that's quite charming. But I also wanted to mention two things that jumped out to me um, about language, sort of related to language this week. One of them is just stupid. Um, Did you know that bamboo has its own subfamily? Would you be able to guess what the subfamily of bamboo is? Boo-bam. Yeah, it's... Bamboo Soidae. Pretty obvious. I like that. Um, And then I was trying to track where the word bamboo came from, and it's really disappointing because it just says, like, from the Malay word, which was probably bamboo, But it doesn't, like, what did that mean? Did they use that for, like, is that used for all grasses, or I need need more? Um, Anyway, the other (laughs) language thing I wanted to come up with is the fact that no matter how long I look at research articles, I'm so often still shocked by the use of words that I have never heard. And I'm like, is that, oh,
1: yeah. am
0: I the problem? Did I not do enough research? Or did researchers just invent a new word again? And my favorite things are things that are sort of like omics words. So like we have genomics and proteomics and it just gets like meta so There's like lots and lots of different sort of fields that you can add omics to. There's a new one I found in a paper um, that came out in Frontier's Plant Science this month, and it's called Riboproteogenomics, <laughs> which is mixing genomics, genes, proteoproteins. Ribo is like the ribosomes, so this machinery that is um, doing the translation, changing, like interpreting mRNA and making it into a protein. Can you guess what this is?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. I mean, I I know that there are riboproteins uh so or um or riboenzymes, ribozymes that work like proteins but are made from RNA. Um and I can imagine. I think
0: you're ever thinking this.
1: Yeah. Then it's maybe it's just like when um the, the mRNA is stuck in the ribosome and the protein is just growing out of the ribosome, and then you have this entire structure of active translation happening and then you pull all of these down and you map them and you describe them and then you make omics out of it which just means large-scale analysis of many different things and sort of identifying them and counting them um yeah so that's, have-
0: that's the thing that's that's already a thing and we've got that it's called ribosome profiling so that's exactly what you said It's like when the the ribosomes are um translating that mRNA like if you sort of arrest them and stop them while they're moving along the strands and then you can like cut the ends off the mRNA and just see the bit of of mRNA that the ribosome is is sitting on we've got that that's the thing that's ribosome profiling so that's what you described just now
1: analyzing the just the 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 little footprint of the RNA that's stuck in the ribosome no I'm thinking of then also sequencing the ribosome um so to tell apart different ribosomes that exist and then also analyzing um, the protein chain of the nascent protein that might be um, post-translationally changed. And then you put all of that in one big Excel sheet, and then you have riboproteogenomics...
0: And definitely some machine learning in there as well no i mean you've actually added it. you've made it more complex you've created a whole new thing um we'll hear about that next month i'm sure so this is like (laughs) yeah it's the ribosome profiling plus that like what you said just getting the bits of the protein this is specifically looking at the the starting end of the protein um and it's to see how we know that different genes can sort of start from different places so there's alternative translation and if you alter the start site you might be able to alter where they start at different under different conditions and that basically it's a way of cheating it's like you have this this one gene but you can get multiple different proteins from the same gene and the conditions for getting those different proteins might you know mhm you might have like you know you're adding adding some spice into the mix multi multifunctional genes um <laughs> So this is just to understand how um like sort of to map that so you're looking at what's been um translated by doing the ribosome profiling but you're also looking at the ends of the proteins to really show that hey look it's a different end than it was in that other dude.
1: Yeah. This is one of my favorite things of the discrepancy between what you learn in school and what the reality in biology is. You I learn one gene one function um One gene makes one protein and this is how we define gene and um, then the Mm. enzyme that's made from the gene or the protein that's made from the gene. Um, But then in reality, in biology, you have all of these different ways of taking one single gene and making a number of different proteins from it. You can have alternative splicing where the introns that we talked about before um, are removed in different patterns or not all of them completely removed and then you again get a different protein then you have the different starting sites uh, within a gene and then you have like post-translational modifications of that gene that can change so uh, or you have the the mRNA editing where the gene is made but then something intercepts the messenger in between and changes something on it and then a different protein is made Um, and yeah this is whenever I, I read some absolute in biology I have to think of the one gene one function thing how how untrue that is when you look at the specifics of it and of course for the grand scheme of thing uh grand scheme of things this is a good way to look at it but th- as soon as you look closer you're like oh oh yeah it's 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 not just one gene one function um or one gene one protein there's much more to it it
0: was all uh, a lie yeah but also
1: like i i think that
0: that's so many of the lies we get told in biology are to try to make things simpler than they really are, right? Like <laughs> we're trying to classify things and make rules and it turns out biology don't give a f <gasps> about your
1: rules. <laughs> exactly that. I have an I have another story that's um, also uh, something something new that we didn't think about before where, where we oversimplified the world and it's actually more complicated. And it's a follow-up to the cryptogram. So maybe you want to re- repeat what, what a cryptogram is. We talked about that um, I think it's actually ago? not a
0: follow-up to the cryptogram, it's a follow-up to the cryptogams. Yes. So, a few weeks <laughs> ago I discussed yeah, the difference the between a cryptogam and a cryptogram. A cryptogram is a code, like a, a written code, <laughs> something that a spy would use. A cryptogam, the gam is related to the gametes and it's basically kind of a plant-like thing where you can't see where its sexy parts are, so it doesn't have a flower or obvious seeds. And it's quite an old-fashioned term, it's not that commonly used now um, because the group it's from Linnaeus' times. It refers not only to things like um, mosses and ferns that are like non-seed having plants, but it also often li- often included things like um, algae, but also um, fungi and you know maybe even some like mouldy, slimy things that are yeah not actually maybe like you know some bacteria things even
1: another fuzzy biology term of uh, trying to grouping or putting lots of things in a in a box um, like when I when I mean I that's create-
0: really that's. It's really like the other box, isn't it? It's like there's yeah. things with flowers, like things without flowers and seeds. And there's like just cannot deal. Other, other.
1: Sometimes I organize my folders on my computer and I have like, this is my work stuff. This is my podcast stuff. These are photos that I took. And this folder is the rest. I'm just calling it stuff. And then sometimes it gets like stuff Yeah. And CryptoGams I mean, is a little bit the stuff of, <laughs> of the plant world.
0: I mean, it is fair. It's not great that we've included fungi because as we discussed in the last podcast, there are like, what was it? Seven to 10 times more fungi than there are plants. So like including all of the fungi in the other box is unfair. But if we exclude the fungi and we're just looking at kind of actual plant things, I think what like 90% of plants are angiosperms, thus your abominable mystery. Um, So it does make sense to put that remaining like less than 10% in another box. It's not not unfair. It's just... A bit scientifically <laughs> inaccurate the way it was classified just like not not great like three yeah. star effort
1: <laughs> and and as we're about to learn now um the stuff in the other box the cryptogams, they might have some exciting features as well um have you heard of biogenic volatile organic compounds bvox
0: You know, I have, but only because I'm pretty sure this is the paper that I originally found out about the word cryptocans from. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Tell me more, Yarm. Tell me more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, biogenic volatile organic compounds are little organic molecules, um, chemical molecules that are made by living organisms, um, hence biogenic. And usually we think about trees and stuff that make these volatile compounds so they go in the air as gases form. Um, They are sometimes... The messengers from within, for example, a tree, one leaf at the bottom left of the tree experiences something, for example, is nibbled on by a caterpillar, and then it emits a volatile signal to alert the other bits of the tree that they ramp up their defenses. And then then you have sort of a cascade of signaling, and there's a big cloud of volatile compounds suddenly shot into the air um and these things are biologically important but also on a um, physical level because these molecules can um work as uh like be involved in precipitation and cloud formation so you have this cloud of volatile compounds coming up from a tree or forest um goes in the air and then um, raindrops or water droplets can um condensate on these molecules and form clouds and so they're very important in climate modeling and um to To understand where clouds form, you have to understand how trees emit volatile somewhere um and it's part of climate models and But now researchers have found out that um cryptogams so mosses and lichens particularly also um produce considerable amounts of these volatile compounds, something that wasn't known or cared for before um there were uh, is seems to be quite important um, also in terms of of the climate modeling um, because they are also quite abundant, these mosses and lichens. And therefore, um, yet again, we need to update the climate models a a tiny little bit to reflect that also mosses and lichens can make these volatile compounds that then can have an effect on the atmosphere.
0: I, I sort of two things bring to mind. The first is that Robin Wall Kimmerer, we've talked about her before, um, she's a plant ecologist and she had an episode on the Ologies podcast called Bryology, which is the like science of mosses, and she was describing how like mosses themselves are like tiny forests just at a smaller scale. So it's really it evokes an image of, you know, there being little mini forest ecosystems. And the second is that I just have now a mental image in my head of little tiny clouds floating above the mosses (laughs) and the lichens. And it's really, really cute.
1: Oh, yeah. I haven't thought of that. But yeah, I know I see a little patch of moss growing and tiny miniature sized clouds with miniature sized rain above it.
0: Delightful. Join (laughs) us in this mental imagery, listeners.
1: Ah, that's beautiful.
0: Listeners, I did a beautiful segue where I mentioned clouds and then linked that to star and then linked that to the star that is Leonardo DiCaprio. Um but then Yaram revealed that he still hasn't watched Don't Look Up, so we had to cut a whole section where I screamed at him for not being zeitgeisty and you know, there's this whole thing where like I don't have I'm not cool. I don't know what's happening with the kids, but if Yaram doesn't know, I'm gonna have to I mean, I have to get new, cooler friends, I guess. So Yoram so now has homework. He's going to watch "Don't Look Up," um, and I'm going to discuss now a a new plant species that has been um, that is new to science, at least, and it has been named after Leonardo DiCaprio. So <laughs> okay. there is a tree called Ovariopsis DiCaprio tree. Um, this. Tree is mentioned in Kew Gardens' release of 10 species that are new to science in 2021. So this came out at the start of this year um, for sort of last year stuff. It contains, I think, mostly plants, but also a couple of fungus, including a really terrifying fungus that is described as being a fungus with teeth and looks like it's a fungus with teeth and is frankly awful. Um, But also something that is named after Marianne North, who is an artist who did lots of plant paintings? So I think we've discussed before on this podcast. And then finally, this tree that has been named after Leonardo DiCaprio. So it's a tree that was is found in Cameroon, and basically they named the tree after Leonardo DiCaprio because he played an important role in lobbying efforts to prevent logging from happening in the forest um, Mm -hmm. where it's been found. So he did some sort of social media campaign at the start of 2020. And based on that, it was was successful. Um, This forest, it's called Ebo Forest. It's one of the largest forests that's still intact in Cameroon. Um, So it's kind of important. And because of that, the plant got named after him it's a tree it is unfortunately already critically endangered i guess we can guess why it's found <laughs> in areas that are popular for logging um but we we know it exists now so hopefully there can be some efforts to save it um mm-hmm. yeah it's it is a bit of a weird thing where a tree in cameroon gets named after some random dude celebrity but i think um yeah it's good that things are getting conserved
1: as a researcher i would always be afraid that if i name my species of interest after a living person that somebody in the future there's going to
0: be some me too thing happening
1: uncover something bad about them and then so i would always just pick somebody um who's not alive anymore where we have a fairly good understanding of what a human what a human being they were um, and then be fairly confident that they they were not bad. And I'm not saying that Leonardo DiCaprio is a bad person, but uh, we've seen in the past that people <laughs> who look nice sometimes turn out not to be nice um, in, in private. And I would, as a researcher, I would hate it if I studied this thing, I'd name it after a famous person and then... I don't. Know. I don't want to suggest any bad things that he might have done because he probably didn't do anything. Um, I'm just saying that like, I'm anxious like that. Okay,
0: we're going. We're going off the track a bit here. Uh, apart from your mistrust of Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, this is there is this is a concern that has precedent. So there's like a, a species of beetle, I think, that is named after Hitler, and there's been a lot of discussion about trying to change its name. And one of the problems with science is that we have this idea that something once something has the the scientific name. We should not alter the scientific name under almost any circumstance, which is obviously problematic when you're naming species after people in history who themselves are problematic. I think also for the beetle, it's not ideal because, as it turns out, a lot of neo Nazis like to collect beetles. So the beetle is now not only got a <laughs> name, but it's also like becoming endangered <laughs> yes. because people are collecting the beetle. So I mean. Poor beetle. I, I don't know what else to say about that. Like it's, <laughs> it's not a great situation all around. But anyway, um, as far as we know, Leonardo DiCaprio hasn't done anything too heinous, um, and the tree will happily be called Ulvariopsis DiCaprio for a good long time in the future. And I will we'll also put the link to these new species that have come up in 2021. I think it's it's just cool to think of the fact that we're still discovering or like describing at least maybe is a better word um species continuously i think that's quite nice okay so the final thing i want to mention is related to something we were sort of talking about earlier today about the x-men um obviously my favorite x-man is wolverine um because he's the best and (laughs) i i like to believe that his powers are the most attainable like his powers just seem to be like Having a good pain tolerance, I feel like that's doable.
1: So controversial, like, I don't think anybody else would say Wolverine is their favorite.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, he's also a huge actor. It really helps his cause. Anyway, if Yarm, here's my question for this is a, this is the most obscure and stupid thing I've ever said on this podcast, and wow, we have some <laughs> some examples. If you. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to be Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody's like, we're going to like cut you open and add some really cool claws. Um, no, the claws he had before. But
1: they put the metal in him. Sorry, what now? He had the claws already. They would just put the metal in him. They didn't. They didn't cut him open to give he him didn't, claws. He, he didn't ha-
0: have the claws. He did. No Yorum, They gave him the claws.
1: No, he had like bone claws, and then they covered them in the adamantium thing.
0: No, his only skill is that he can heal properly. Dear listener, we just had to edit out a um, three-minute argument between Yoram and I over whether or not Wolverine originally had bone claws or whether he just had healing powers and the bone claws were added. I think he just had healing powers... Um, Yoram thinks he had bone claws I think that's not canon um, Please just text Yoram is wrong To the number on your screen that's flashing up now um, Let us know Anyway, <laughs> this is not related to my comment Which was actually about plants, Yoram um, Always trying to make us talk about X-Men instead of plants So if if you Let's say you have bone claws And you have amazing healing powers And also that like eight or ten pack that Hugh Jackman's got going on there and they're going to reinforce your bone claws with something and as it turns out there's been a global shortage of adamantium it has that really inconvenient thing where like once it solidifies it's not meltable again seems inconvenient Um and you have to use a plant-based substance yeah what are you going to be using
1: you think about like the hardest um compound in the world I think I've, I've... It's one of the polymers, isn't it? Isn't it like, uh, like pure cellulose or something, or uh, lignin is the hardest, toughest stuff in the world? Or is it? Is it? Uh, I mean, then I'm I'm thinking calcite crystals as well. They are also very, very hard. Um, or like the little starch granules that they have for sensing gravity. Um, so many options. What would I pick from? From plants. Um, I
0: mean, you've you've got to pick something, and then you have to fight me. And
1: you pick. I know what advantage. I'm picking. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm picking calcite crystals.
0: Oh, you lost a fight. That's a shame. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> um, personally, I am choosing sporopollenin. So this is a, a polymer. Well done, Yara. It's a compound that is actually used to protect the, the pollen. Um, and uh, yeah. it is named the diamond of the plant world. It is extremely hard and extremely strong, but it's also like recalcitrant when it's basically challenged by anything. So it's not just like physically strong. It's like like, you know, mechanically strong, but also thermally strong, hydrostatically, it can't be oxidized, you can't put like other biological pressures on it. Um, and like the evidence we have of this, among other things, is that we have fossil spores that are about 450 million years old, um, which from earlier we'll remember is when when plants first came to the land, and they are still sort of hanging in there because they are protected by this sporo
1: i I, sh- I should have said that i i knew that i just didn't have it on my mind but i read that and i find it so amazing that you have like this large part of of fossils that you find are just these tiny pollen grains that are so incredibly hard and durable and impossible to break down um that we still find them today uh and yeah i mean good, good basically pick, good pick. <laughs>
0: thank you thank you so apparently this i think it goes back to the 30s um there was i'm getting this from a mini review that came out in frontiers plant science in 2021 um i sorry it seems super cool i want to read more and more about this but apparently the definition of this substance basically came from you do acetolysis which i'm imagining is involving boiling in acid but yeah (laughs) It's the thing that's remained after you've basically thrown everything at the other substance. Like, you know, do everything, and then what's left is this dude. And that's in contrast to other things that like inferior fighters might have chosen, like Hutin, superin, or lignin. Was lignin your choice, Yoram? Um I mentioned it. Yeah, woody claws, which are um, yeah, they
1: might be more more flexible. Maybe they don't shatter as much, and then I have the advantage.
0: I don't, I mean, sure, you do you, but in 450 million times, we're going to see whose claws are still hanging around. That's (laughs) all I'm saying.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we found all of these little spores and this weird woman's uh, claws (laughs) that survived.
0: And I just want to give a shout out to the authors because one of them is Etienne, um, not the SN we know, but an Etienne. And the other one is called Tegan, and I think is also a friend of a friend of mine because the world of plant science is very small. So <laughs> shout out to the cool Tegans of the plant science world. Yes, I'm a narcissist, and I'm now a narcissist with sporo pollen and claws, so come fight me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Cat fact.
0: Guys, Joran brought a really disgusting cat fact to the show, and he's not allowed to give that cat fact because it's awful. And
1: so it instead, is. I'm really happy that you brought something.
0: Instead, we're going with a crow fact. Yeah, we're going with a crow fact. I don't, I don't know if we've had this crow fact before. I just realized it's actually from early 2020 and we do talk about crows a lot on this podcast given that it's a plant podcast with a secondary interest in cats anyway um, this is from a project. So it's a conference paper, and the the project is called Urban Corvids. So corvids are the group of birds that crows belong to, eavesdropping on speech. And I myself am really happy that scientists are spending money to check in to see how much the crows are eavesdropping on us, because I think it is important for us to arrange defenses. (laughs) Um, But the title of the conference paper is Language Discrimination by Large Build crows. And what they found out very briefly is that not only are crows definitely listening in to try to learn our secrets, so we should be trying to learn theirs, um, but also that they can discriminate between different types of speech. So -hmm. they just basically had crows listening to Japanese. These are Japanese crows. They're pretty commonly hearing Japanese. That's their local language. And they also had some unfamiliar language speakers dropping in there. In this case, it was Dutch and they found out the crows were much more responsive to the dutch than the japanese which Mm -hmm. now like i'm going a little bit out on a limb here but i'm suggesting that they've already figured out all of the japanese and they've already learned that one and they're listening (laughs) to the dutch because they're gonna learn the second language finally
1: something new Um, to learn
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're like well we've we've sorted this this out let's (laughs)
1: Yeah, I like and... that, they so, that they figured out Japanese, which is one of the, the more complicated languages in terms of um, the different well, for... hierarchies, the different ways you can talk to one another, like the the polite uh, politeness that's in like. Or the, the w- I
0: think it's easier if you're a crow because you don't need to worry. Like you just always at the top of the hierarchy, so you're always <laughs> talking down to everyone else. I mean, it's like you don't have to worry about you know using the honorific or like humbling your own speech, which is a, a feature of the Japanese language. For those of you playing at home, because you just always <laughs> are like full on. I'm a crow mother <laughs> I'm the king.
1: And so and then they went to Dutch, and we we're like, oh yeah, this this sounds uh, exciting and new. Let's uh, let's learn that.
0: The the final sentence of the abstract is explaining that crows can voluntarily apply this mechanism of um sort of like discriminating between languages to language outside of experimental setups, which means that they can do that by choice and without you needing to train them, which again, cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love crows. Um I I learned about crows that when you turn their your back um to them you can tell them that you're not afraid of them and then they come closer, I guess, until you are afraid of them. Um, but it's also like you... Yeah,
0: who turns their back to a crow? What insanity is this, Yar? You're also
1: sort of communicating to them that you're not a predator, you're not, um, you're not a risk to them. And that's what, how you can get them closer. And I really want to befriend a crow this year. So um, I duly noted that <laughs> and then we'll, uh, we'll try that this next time I see a crow, if I can make it come closer to me.
0: So, you know, a couple of podcasts, a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned that my 2022 resolution was, what did I say? I think, like, by 2030, I wanted to become 20% swine. Um, <laughs> you want to befriend crows. Befriend yeah. Crows. Okay. <laughs>
1: that would be so good. I
0: think... That needs to be the end of our show for today. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can find me on Facebook sometimes and Instagram much more often. It's at Plants and Puppets.
1: And uh, you can talk to me on Twitter. It's at Plants pipettes.
0: We also have a website. It's www.plantsandpuppets.com where you can find stories about things that are happening in the plant world.
1: Uh, and if you haven't done so after we very prominently featured the book that we just read in the Plant Book Club last year, uh, last week, um, you can check out the Plant Book Club. It's a cool uh, different podcast that we do with a couple of our friends where we read books that are somewhat related to plants and then discuss them. And we read Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake last time. And it was a very fun book to read and I think also a fun episode to discuss it. Um, and you will also find that linked in the show notes.
0: And I think that's all from us today. Our opening and closing music, as always, is Caravana by Philip Gross. And Um, goodbye.
1: Goodbye.